0: Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm glad to see everybody uh, this morning again. And uh, glad we could be together to hear God's word, because it's only in God's word that we're oriented properly to the world. It's only through God's word that we see who we really are. We see the world for what it is, and most of all, of course, that we meet God and see him and understand him for who he is. So with that in mind, let's let's pray. Father, we need your word, so we pray that you would give us ears to hear. We pray that you would give us hearts attuned to you. Most of all, we pray that you would show us the good news of Jesus. And for his sake we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago the comedic website McSweeney's published a uh, a found document, a letter from uh from a college denying tenure to assistant professor Henry Indiana Jones Jr. Uh Dr. Jones, of course, you know from all of his adventures. Uh but They outline the criteria for tenure at the college and, uh, in the, of course, catalog the ways in which he has failed to meet all of the criteria. Uh, they go through his poor teaching record. He fails to finish uh, a semester of uninterrupted. Uh, we, they go through his record of departmental and campus service, which is pretty lousy. In fact, noting that he burned down a wing of the biology department. They, uh, they go through uh, his, his failure to um, produce uh, scholarship and research of high quality. Uh, they go through all these different things. Under his, profe- under his uh, professional standards of conduct and research, they note this. Far more times than I would care to mention, the name Indiana Jones, the adopted title Dr. Jones insists on being called, has appeared in governmental reports linking him to the Nazi party black market antiquities dealers, underground cults, human sacrifice, Indian child slave labor, and the Chinese mafia. There are a plethora of international criminal charges against Dr. Jones, which include but but are not limited to bringing unregistered weapons into and out of the country, property damage, desecration of national and historical landmarks, impersonating officials, arson, grand theft, automobiles, motorcycles, aircraft, and watercraft in just one week excavating without a permit, countless antiquities violations, public endangerment, voluntary and involuntary manslaughter and allegedly murder. <laughs> under and you know, fi- finally I mean I think the capstone is under his experience and expertise in his chosen field it says this the committee concurred that Dr. Jones does seem to possess a nearly superhuman breadth of linguistic knowledge and an uncanny familiarity with the history and material culture of the occult. However, His understanding and practice of archaeology gave the committee the greatest cause for alarm. Criticisms of Dr. Jones ranged from, quote, possessing a perceptive methodological deficiency, end quote, to, quote, practicing archaeology with a complete lack of, disregard for, and colossal ignorance of current methodology, theory, and ethics, end quote, to, quote, unabashed grave robbing, end quote. I bring all this up not because, I mean, it's, Funny for a lot of different reasons, but it you get the point, right, that this, this story, all these Indiana Jones stories, are supposedly about a guy who loves archaeology. He also likes to, I guess, you know, get in the way of Nazis, which we can't fault him for. But he supposedly loves the study of, you know, the material history of humanity, and yet he has a blatant disregard for all of the standards by which that is done. So on the one hand, he seems to be completely obsessed with it. On the other hand, he has complete disregard for it. And in some ways, that kind of, that characterizes the way we view Scripture. I think particularly as Christians, we can be focused, hyper-focused on the aspects of it that we love. And we go to it. Maybe you have a favorite verse. Maybe there's things you go to again and again and again. And yet, we can be so dismissive of other aspects of it. Things that don't perhaps interest us very much. Things that we find challenging. So, Jesus, in this story, deals with the Pharisees and the scribes. And he points out two ways in which they fail to handle Scripture well. Two ways in which they fail to handle it rightly. First, they add to Scripture... And second, they subtract from Scripture. And then we will see what it means to honor Scripture. So if you're following along, that's, what does it mean to add to God's Word? What does it mean to subtract from it? And what does it mean to honor Him and honor His Word? It begins, of course, in verses 1 and 2, with Jesus' disciples coming in, and they don't wash properly. Now, this isn't about... Whether they actually have clean hands, it's about a ceremonial way of washing your hands. Uh, I don't know if they washed at all or not. I, it doesn't really tell us what they're criticized for is that they didn't follow what was understood as the proper way of doing it. Uh, lots of religions have formal rites of washing. This isn't uh, this isn't particularly unique in terms of uh, religions in the world. What, of course, is unique here, though, is it is built on Levitical laws, so these are from the book of Leviticus, about how you were supposed to wash in order to be ceremonially clean. Uh, the category under which these these operate are uh the, the need to uh be cleansed of things that were uh deadly, that were sometimes connected with sin, but of course most of all uh to deal with uh Various aspects of life in a sinful world. So the idea of being unclean didn't mean that it was inherently sinful. It meant uh, that it was some aspect of the broken world. But, and this is key, this was all about being clean in order to go into the temple. You actually weren't necessarily required to wash all the time in this way unless you planned to go to the temple. But what the Pharisees had done, and a lot of the scribes, remember Pharisees are not a particular, that's not a particular job, that's just a a kind of designation of a group of people that really took the law seriously. Uh, and the scribes were the professionals. So a, a group of them had, see, had had looked at this and they had started to think, well, how do we base our actions out of God's word, but attempt to keep all of the ceremonial law as much as we can in all of life, which on the one hand is admirable, but on the other hand means that you're requiring more of people than God actually required of them. There is a whole tradition of the elders you see that's spoken of a couple times in this passage, and That is almost a technical term in ancient Judaism. There was a belief that there was a kind of oral tradition passed down from the rabbis going back to Moses about how to apply this. Uh, Now, there is no real evidence of that, of course, but that was how they thought of it. So they were imagining that they were being faithful to God's word, but in reality what they were doing was adding to it, which is to say that they were presuming to speak for God. And that's the real problem, isn't it? To presume to speak for God. How does it that we add to God's word, I think is the, the question we need to be thinking about. I think I know a little bit about what it looks like. I think, first, oftentimes Christians tend to think, again, and this is a good intuition, I don't want to sin, so how do I stay far away from sinning? So we try to think, well, I don't want to necessarily get real close to it, so I will just, as the, as the uh, rabbinical scholars used to do, set up a fence around the law, right? So I don't even get anywhere near it. I'm going to just stay far away. Now, of course, that may be a fine decision for you, but the minute it becomes a standard by which you judge others is where it starts to become a problem. Then you start to become the minister, you know, in the town in Footloose, right? Thinking that the problem, of course, is dancing, right? Dancing is what will lead to all kinds of other, all kinds of sinful behavior. Of course, it didn't work in that town, and uh, there's no real evidence that it works in our own lives either. That you won't guard yourself from sin by simply adding extra rules to it. Another way we another way we sort of add to God's word is by filling in the gaps. This is an ancient document. Of course it was written the Bible itself was written over the course of 2500 years. Things were different in Moses' day than they were in Jesus' day. And that was 2000 years ago that that ended. So, you know, things are different in our day, right? There with the Bible doesn't speak at all about our kind of communication technology. It doesn't speak about all kinds of aspects of modern-day life directly. We have to apply what we know from Scripture to our lives, and we have to do that. I'm not suggesting that that is bad. What I am saying, though, is at times we fill in the gaps in ways that we extrapolate, assuming lots of other conclusions along the way, and we're not really honest about what those assumptions are. And when other people don't necessarily see it the exact same way we do, we judge them. So we try to keep away from sin, we try to fill in the gaps. We also, and this is particularly dangerous, is we sometimes assume that the conclusions that our culture has come to are the conclusions that every culture should come to. You've probably had this experience if you've ever been on a missions trip to another country, And you go to a worship service, and it's different. It's strange, right? Even if they're speaking English, it's still strange. (laughs) There there are just different ways of doing this. Uh, There are different ways of worshiping God. Now, that doesn't make everything that they do right. It doesn't make everything we do right. But usually in that kind of context, when we're in somebody else's country, we don't tend to judge much. Oh, but in our own country. We talk about how uncomfortable we are with the way this or that church worships. Again, that doesn't mean they're above reproof. It also doesn't mean we're above reproof. But I, you know, it was funny when working with college students. I, I was I was always asking them uh, as they would get settled into college, what church they started, were looking at what char- churches they were starting to get settled in at. And it was funny when I would talk to somebody and they would say they would talk about one of a church or one church or another, and they'd say well, I was kind of uncomfortable with it. And then as you come back around a few weeks later and you're talking to them about this stuff, then they've come up with a whole theological justification for it. And you are just kind of, th- sometimes you're just thinking, well, I think you're just uncomfortable with that. You know, I mean, I, I think <laughs> that's just not what you're used to. I don't know that they were wrong in doing that. You know, The, the of course then our, distinctions of what is right or wrong start to be drawn along economic lines. They start to be drawn along racial lines. Even now, the most divided hour of the week, as Dr. King famously said, right? And so we will sometimes confuse our cultural distinctions with what God's Word Teaches. And all of this is done, and this is what's so sinister about it, with misplaced zeal. We are convinced we are doing this for God's honor, but in fact, what we are doing is presuming to speak for Him. And I'll give you a few illustrations of how we do this, ways in which we add to God's Word. Uh, Have you ever seen Christian diets? These exist. If you haven't, that's okay. Uh, You can be entertained by Googling that this afternoon. right? Uh, Trying to come up with what is the Christian diet. Now, to my knowledge, the only way to do this really in any way that's coherent would at least be to propose eating kosher. Uh, And, you know, (laughs) of course, that wouldn't really be consistent with the book of Acts. So, you know, there you go. Uh, You could perhaps be consistent in suggesting that we should just eat locusts and honey. Uh, Or matzah and quail, but nobody seems to be suggesting these sorts of diets. Uh, And that's all kind of funny, but what about what the Bible says about dating? The Bible has some principles, for sure, that need to be applied to how you date, but does the Bible give a big outline of dating? How it ought to be done? The answer, obviously... Applying is no, right? The, The Bible doesn't give that, yet lots of people write books about it. And not all of them, but a lot of them seem to insist that their way is the biblical way. What about parenting? Oh, there are so many Christian books about parenting that tell you they've got it figured out. They know all the details. Now, of course, the Bible does have some things that we're told we we should be doing or we should steer clear from in parenting, like there are principles to be applied but there's no map for what 21st century parenting looks like in detail no, you still have to figure that out right, there is no one size fits all answer to that an even more specific question to that is schooling oh boy, we won't even get into that think about politics, right it's an election year I know Christians on the right, and I know Christians on the left that insist that their way of voting is the Christian way. Now, I understand this is a minefield. And it is true that the Bible has principles that we need to be thinking through in terms of how we vote. But God didn't send the Republican Party, and God didn't send the Democratic Party. You remember, even when there was a theocracy, when God had established a government, when Joshua goes into the promised land and runs into the angel of the Lord, Joshua asks him, whose side are you on? Assuming he's going to say either theirs or the Canaanites. And he says, I'm on God's side. The implication is, Joshua, you better get on God's side (laughs) in this whole thing. How about this? How about how you respond to the coronavirus? We all have to make a million decisions, and believe me, I am swimming in all these decisions with the church, and I uh, I cannot seem to stop having to worry about a million decisions about how we respond to the coronavirus. I've got a family. We all have to think through all these different issues. Do, are you though, this is a question, are you super proud about your decision about whether to wear a mask or not? Do you look down on others, right? Are you a mask-wearing person? And you think, hmm, what are they doing walking around without a mask in the store? Ah, are you a non-mask-wearing person? And you see all these idiots walking around with masks on. What are they doing? What about your, I mean, all the different decisions, right, about how much you're going to go out, whether you'll have people, friends over, you know, whether you'll have, how close you'll be to family, all of these different things, right? And the problem isn't that you it isn't that you don't have, that you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision. You want to be wise in it, and I'm not saying that there aren't some decisions that might be wiser than others. The question is whether you start judging other people in the way in which you judge them. That's what it means to add to God's Word. If you think the value of a person, the actual moral character of a person depends on all these other things because Jesus didn't talk about face masks. God didn't talk about face masks. Are there principles to be applied in a pandemic about how we should think about our actions? Yes. But be careful, be careful that you aren't adding to God's Word. And I have a question as well. I mean, these are all obvious illustrations for Christians. If you're not a Christian and you are with us this morning, I have a few questions throughout. Here, I want to ask this question. What is it that you think the Bible must address? What is it that you think really has to be in there? If you were going to take it seriously, what really has to be in this book? I want you to hang on to that answer. We'll get around to these (laughs) these questions in a minute. But that's one of them. So we talked about adding to God's Word, but notice this. There's also a subtracting from God's Word that goes on. Jesus points this out. In verse 8, he says, you leave the commandment of God behind. And instead, you hold on to the tradition of men. And the illustration he gives is the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. He even goes so far, Jesus even reminds them, uh, look, under the Mosaic law, if you grossly violated that, it was a capital offense. He quotes from Exodus 21 to remind them, like, this is a big deal in God's eyes, right? This is God's moral law. This is one of those things that can, be, can cost you your life. Under the Mosaic Law. If, you're, if you blow it off, it's that serious. Yet, he goes on to make this point that they have built up a rabbinic tradition uh, that apparently, in practice, cuts against this, grand, against this uh, commandment that keeps people from actually fulfilling it. So there's a practice uh, of giving something as a kind of offering to God. Uh, Korban is just a... Transliteration of an uh, Aramaic word <laughs> that that means a gift, an offering to God, and the way it would work is that in your life, you would vow that all that you had when you die would go to be a gift to the temple. so it would be so it's kind of like a will in that sense, but it has a it does have an effect throughout your life. You can live off your money, you can live off your- you know with your possessions and all that but you can't give it away because it does already belong to God. And the reality, of course, in the first century, as has been the reality in most cultures for most of time, is that you, the elderly needed to be taken care of by their children. And this is this is just how most cultures for most of history have worked, right? The idea of retirement is a modern invention. <laughs> the uh, Instead, when you were... Older, you lived with your family, right? It was your children that took care of you. So what had happened was, in practice, as people were doing this thing that looked good, right? Like, I'm the kind of person that gives all of my money and possessions to God. Actually put people in a position where they were not honoring their parents. Where they were violating God's law. So the reality is, by adding something to it, they had actually taken away. From what mattered more. The laws around the temple didn't matter that much, as nearly as much as following the moral law. So how does this work in your life? How does this work in mine? I think the number one way in which we subtract from God's word is by pitting Scripture against Scripture. See, the best way to interpret Scripture is to let Scripture interpret it, right? So you get to a difficult passage, you get to something, maybe it's a challenging kind of ethical, moral teaching, right? And you try to see, well, what are other places that this is talked about, and then you interpret it in light of that, right? So if God's Word is telling me this and it's telling me that, I've got to sort of bring them together, right? So when, in just a doctrinal issue, right, think about justification. Paul says you're not justified by your works, but by faith alone. James says, well, look, you're justified by, not just by your faith, but by your works, right? And you have to unpack those passages, read them together, and see what's meant, right? And the point is that you st- your standing with God is through faith, but that faith is never alone. That faith always grows out into action, right? Now, this is a, that's a pretty obvious example, but uh, one way this works out that I, I kind of hear continually and have heard continually is uh thinking about uh, distinctions right so paul says in galatians 3 there is neither jew nor greek there is neither slave nor free there is no female male and female for you are all one in christ jesus it's an amazing statement right about how in christ there's no distinction there's no distinction in how we're saved there's no distinction in how and how we're valued by god uh that whether it's your ethnicity, whether it's your position in society, whether it is your gender, those things are are not a distinction in terms of your value, in terms of being saved. Oh, that's a great amazing statement. Yet the curious thing. Paul talks a lot about how Jews and Greeks ought to get to ought to treat one another. The most curious thing. Paul talks about slaves and masters, and how they ought to treat each other. The most curious thing, he talks about men and women, particularly in marriage and in the church, and how they ought to interact with each other. And particularly around questions of gender, you see this come up over and over and over again. And it's insisted that the, that the way Paul talks about that is not consistent with what he said in Galatians. So we pit Scripture against Scripture. And sometimes it's insinuated, well, actually, not insinuated, specifically said that, well, you know, Paul just hadn't thought it all through, right? Galatians gives the, the big, beautiful principle that he really meant, and he hadn't really thought it through. Well, could it be that what Paul has said in Galatians is still actually consistent with it, right? Now, I'm not saying passages about race, passages about slavery, passages about gender haven't been abused in horrible, horrible ways, I'm not saying that those aren't it's not really important that we think carefully about what they are saying and what they're not saying. But if we're going to get into the game of pitting scripture against scripture then we will always be taking away from God's word. So we take we pit scripture against scripture we also explain it away sometimes. I my first semester as a as a campus minister I sat down with a student, uh, we were talking about whatever was going on in this person's life, and they had their Bible in their backpack, and we were talking about different things, so they had opened it up, and I had noticed as we were talking that there were a bunch of post-it notes, a lot of them, sticking out the side of this Bible, uh, at least a dozen, maybe maybe 20 or so, sticking out the side of this Bible, and I thought, "Oh, well, this is curious, I wonder what all these post-it notes are. So we kind of wrap up what we were talking about, and I said, well, Can I ask you a question? What are all these post-it notes? And this person tells me, these are all the passages I have a problem with. (laughs) That their Bible was covered in all of these passages, and we started to talk through a couple of them. And it became clear this student was simply trying to explain away, as we talked through these passages, what they found difficult. Then, rather than accepting that some things are difficult, that the Bible calls us to, they sought to explain them away. And I think, again, we see this going on in the church around sexuality, right? We see, we have sought to explain it away. Now, again, there's ways in which the Bible's instructions on sexuality have been misused. I mean, sometimes really horribly. And yet, what we see is because this has been a topic that you know, has seen a vast uh, title change in public opinion, all of a sudden we're thinking, mm, maybe we can explain away what it teaches. How about this? We pit Scripture against Scripture. We explain it away. We also just sometimes avoid the difficult passages. Things that we know tell us things we don't like and we just kind of ignore them. We just try not to go back to reading that passage. We skip over that chapter. We do whatever it takes, right? This is kind of like having a leak in your ceiling and just deciding you're going to put a bucket under it for a while. Or noticing a crack in your foundation and thinking, well, I'll just put a bush in front of that so I don't have to look at it, right? You can't leave these problems be, right? You can avoid it, but it will, of course, become a much, much bigger issue. So we subtract in a lot of different ways, right? These are are our strategies for it, but what are the things we actually subtract? And we talked about gender and sexuality in passing already. I mean, think about gossip. Gossip's another great example of ways in which we subtract from the Bible. The Bible's really clear not to gossip. What do we do, though? We tell ourselves, and we're looking out for the well-being of this person, and so we lay aside God's commandment. Or here's my, here's my favorite one. How about what we say and do online? Even in particular social media, right? So whether you're into Twitter or Facebook, or whether you're actually under 35 and you do Instagram and TikTok or whatever else you do, you know, whatever it is you're posting, writing, liking, Uh, reposting, whatever it is you're doing. We have such a nasty social media culture. We tell ourselves that we are taking a stand for things that are true, but in fact, we're violating the Ninth Commandment all over the place. The one about not bearing false witness, about truth-telling. In fact, if you want a little exercise and think about your own behavior on social media, just Google the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's everybody's favorite document. Westminster Larger Catechism. Questions 143 to 145 are the questions about the Ninth Commandment. And I will tell you, it is sobering. It reads like all of the ways in which we misuse social media. It, with all the ways in which we practice telling and spreading half-truths the way we intentionally believe the worst about people we disagree with. It is horrific. And we tell ourselves that we're taking a stand on this issue or that. Meanwhile, we are dismissing an obvious place God's Word tells us to do differently. So, if you're a non-Christian, I have another question. What is it do you think the Bible has to leave behind? Maybe you think the Bible should speak to things that it doesn't, and you wish something were added to it about this or that. What is it you think shouldn't be there, that you'd rather it left out? Adding and subtracting, I mean, these are, this is what it means to mishandle God's Word, right? But there's a really curious thing. It's not simply, again, about the fact that you have to make decisions about how you're going to go through life, how you're going to apply the principles of God's Word. It's always about more than that. It's always about whether I come out looking better or not. When we're really adding or subtracting, the question that's always operating is whether my performance, whether the life I'm living qualifies as being a good one, whether it stands out. And here we get to the heart of the matter, that mishandling Scripture, it isn't just about misreading it. It isn't even merely about presuming to to speak where God speaks or to take away what God has spoken. It is to have missed the very heart of it. It is to have missed the very point of Scripture. And that gets us to this last point of thinking about what it means to honor God's Word. Notice what Jesus does when he starts to answer them. He goes to Isaiah 29, uh, a point where, where where God says, this people, through the prophet, he's talking about his people, Honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. They're giving lip service that they trust him, that they like him, that they're listening to him, but their heart really isn't engaged. Have you ever Have you ever been in a conversation with a close friend? Maybe with a spouse and maybe with a child. And they say, you're not listening to what I'm saying. That is an indictment. You see, because the people we love, we listen to. When we love someone, We listen to what they're saying. We listen to what matters to them. We're listening not just for the statements. We're paying attention to what they do and how they act in in accordance with that. We are listening, that is to say, not just to hear the words, but to really engage with it, really engage what it is they want. Sometimes recognizing that they even have a hard time And this is where the analogy to God breaks down. But they they even have a hard time articulating what it is they want. How much more should we be listening to God that way? We talked about uh, prayer last week. (laughs) And this is the other routine that is a basic building block of the Christian life, is being in God's Word. And like prayer... The Bible doesn't tell us these are the number of minutes you need to clock every day in the Bible. In his word, reading. Uh, Well, I mean, it kind of actually does. It tells you in Psalm 1 that you should meditate on it day and night. So, all the time. It's a pretty high bar. Uh, In Deuteronomy 6, where we're told to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all, all your strength. He also says that then, you know, what you ought to be doing is uh, talking about it when you sit in your house or when you're walking along the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. So, I, you know, I guess if you're looking for a number, uh, 24-7 is the number I got for you. Um, I think practically the point then is that we're supposed to be in it all the time. Uh, surely you can't be literally reading it every minute, I don't. Obviously, that's not what it's getting at. But what it is saying is this ought to be part of your daily routine, right? This ought to be part of what you're doing is being in God's Word. And I think like prayer, if that isn't part of your routine, you know, the worst way to start is to try to like read for an hour every day because you're almost certain to fail. But rather to think about how how do I get quality over quantity, right? Like how do I spend at least a little time here? How do I make this a more consistent pattern? You know, there's no shame if you're struggling through a passage or if you're struggling through, you know, I I just think, you know, Leviticus is one of those books that's so hard to get through. Jeremiah is a book that's so hard to get through. There's a bunch of these minor prophets, and most people don't really understand the context in which they're happening. Like, You just get bogged down. There's no shame in saying, uh, I want to be in God's word, and I just need encouragement today. Like, I'm going to a passage I know to listen to it. You need to get through all of God's Word, of course, but maybe not today. Maybe today you need to hear most clearly the message of Jesus. And there's no shame in listening to it. I mean, you, you should also realize most Christians for most of history were illiterate. Now, it's part of our Reformation heritage that we think it's good to teach people how to read <laughs> for no other reason than they can read God's Word. Yet, most Christians for most of the time only ever heard God's word read to them. So maybe you are at home with little kids all day, and actually sitting down with the Bible and opening it up turns into a wrestling match. And the only moment you got in the middle of the day, you're cooking, or you're or you're you know getting laundry done, or something like that. There's no shame in listening to the Bible. There's all these great apps. You can get the ESV Bible app. You know, that will read to you. God's Word, right? There are lots of ways to think about this. My point is to be in it. To be listening to what He has to say to us. And to do that well means to let the Bible interpret us. One of my old seminary professors used to say, the Bible isn't so much a book that we interpret, though of course that's true, we interpret the Bible, but it's a book that interprets us. It's a book that reads us. It is a It's reflexive. It shows us who we are. It exposes something about us. A few weeks back, we talked about reading it with a hermeneutic of love rather than a hermeneutic of suspicion, recognizing that this is a thing that God has given to us in love that we might learn more deeply who he is, that we might experience him. And to do all that, of course, then means that we have to see it through the lens of Jesus. Because here's what Jesus says, and here is where we have to go to actually get our heads on straight about Scripture. Jesus says that the Bible is all about him. In Matthew 5, he says, look, I didn't come to abolish Scripture, I came to fulfill it. In John 5, he's arguing with the Pharisees. He says, look, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. This was about him. At the, end of, at the end of Luke, after the resurrection, Jesus appears to a couple disciples, and it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, through the whole Old Testament, he walked through the whole Old Testament, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, all of that was driving at him. And he is sending his spirit to work in us as the spirit of truth, who is also our comforter, who is also his spirit. One of the reasons that we are tempted to add and subtract to the Bible is because we think it's it's a book about what we ought to be, what we ought to do, what we have to do in order to be considered a good person. And if you're reading it that way, you've missed the most important thing. The Bible's not about you. The Bible is about our gracious, loving Savior. It is about Him entering into the world. It is about the obedience that He performed on our behalf. It is about Him enduring what we deserved. This book is about what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives. The question of obedience is only ever a response to what Jesus has done. Obedience that is biblical is always a response to the perfect life of Jesus given on our behalf. And when we understand that, as we see more that Jesus is the one who has lived the life that we needed to live, as we understand more that Jesus is the one who died the death that we deserve, as we understand more that Jesus is at work in us, we can face up to our lack. We can face up to our failures. We can actually look at those passages that are difficult to look at, those passages that are difficult to apply, those passages that challenge us and not be scared. We can face them with courage that God's got something here for me even if it challenges the way I'm currently doing things because guess what? My confidence is not based on whether I'm living a perfect life. I can look at those, I can look at the way other people are applying the Bible and I don't have to be threatened by it. Again, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, I don't know. (laughs) In any given situation, I don't have to necessarily judge them. God is their judge. I don't have to look with pride at others and say, look, you've got to follow all these extra rules too to have a good life. No, no, no. When I'm confident that Jesus has done everything that I couldn't do, only then can I actually hear his word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us that kind of confidence we know that that confidence only comes through knowing Jesus. We know that confidence only comes because he is the one who's lived the life we could not live, who died the death we deserve, and who was raised up and is the guarantee that all that you promise will not fail. Change us. Teach us to hear your word, we ask, in Christ's name. Amen.